Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to gather. What a joy to sing with brothers and sisters from different churches, even different states, Lord, yet we worship the same Christ. And for that, we rejoice and we thank you for the kindness that's been demonstrated towards us. May you be pleased and glorified in the way that your word is handled uh, today, tomorrow. Lord, may you be pleased in the way that we receive it. May we be humble and hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can turn to 2 Corinthians three eighteen. That's going to be sort of our, the text we're driving at. The, the burden of my talk is to give more of an overview of the glory of the Lord and how it relates to biblical counseling. But I want us to be able to make sense of something like Second uh, Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. I became a Christian kind of late uh, teenage years. Within about a year, a year and a half, I was going to Bible college, and I thought, man, this is, this is pretty sweet. You know, the Apostle Paul's going to be my roommate. Um, you know, Peter will be my resident assistant. And I learned relatively quickly that even those who had been following the Lord for quite a while, sin. And what was interesting about sort of the school I was at, and I'm very thankful for the school I was at. I'm very thankful for the training that I received. I never want to imply otherwise. But a lot, of, a lot of us had come from these churches that had rightfully emphasized evangelism. But what it led to was, was this emphasis on you should obey God in front of others because they might get saved. And that was like the foundation, bottom level of why you should obey God. It was to maintain your testimony around unbelievers. But what happened, and again, that's, that's a good desire to do that. But what happened when you get a bunch of 18-year-old guys together that haven't been discipled very well, we tended to view that as sort of free license because we're at a Bible college and there's not supposed to be any unbelievers in the room. And so now we can joke about what we want. We can say what we want. We can watch whatever we want because, hey, there's no unbelievers around. And then if there was any, any appeal, at least when I was there, the school's even better than it was when I was there, but if there was any appeal whatsoever to live godly, it was, well, you never know. There might be an unbeliever that's your roommate. So what happens is, is we, we take advantage of this and we say, well, I'm by myself or I know my best friend's a believer. So now we have no real basis, no real desire to try to live godly in Christ Jesus. As commendable as it is, as good and right as it is to desire to live godly in front of the world, there's, there's a lack in that motive, if that's the sole foundation of why you should obey God. It was too easy to work around. It was too easy to get around. I needed a deeper motive. I needed something to sink my teeth into that transcended the people around me, that transcended my circumstances, that transcended whether I thought someone was a believer or not. What I needed was to understand the glory of God and how it intersects with my life. And so that's my goal. 
that, that, that by the end of this talk, maybe we can make sense of the fact that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, the glory of the Lord, it's going to run from Genesis to Revelation. It's going to show up in every genre. It's going to show up in every book of the Bible. And I think as such, we might, if we're going to boil down, what's the goal? What's the, what's the baseline? What's the foundation? Why should I counsel others? Why should I obey God? Why should I do anything I do? Why should I make disciples? Because God is glorious, and he displays his glory. And so I think it becomes a helpful uh, answer to the question, what is the goal of biblical counseling? Well, I think you could just say glory, and then we'll press into some different ways and how that plays out. But I think glory is one of those words that, that we tend to use a lot. We tend to throw it around a lot. And maybe when we're pressed for a definition, we might say, oh, actually, I don't know. I say it a lot. Some, some terms uh, that we come across in theology, they're they're hard to define because, you know, people give different definitions of what they are. You know, union with Christ or impassibility. Well, what do you mean by that? Other terms, I think, in Scripture are hard to define because they're used in different contexts, in different ways to mean different things. And that's what we come across with the word glory. So we need to try to understand the word. At its, at its base, at its Old Testament root, it, it, was, it was heaviness. It was weightiness. And it came to be used to describe something of value or worth. If you think of scales back in the day, you know, if you weighed a bunch of gold, the heavier it was, the more valuable it was, the weightier it is, the more worth that it has. So then we might, as sort of a basic definition, say God's glory is his infinite worth. He alone is worthy of all distinction and honor. He is the supreme treasure of the universe. And so my hope, then, is for us not only to see that God is glorious, that he has called us to live unto his glory, but there's also a sense that when we become like Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. There is a sense in Scripture in which we participate in God's glory. Now, I'm not hoping to say everything there is to say about God's glory. In many ways, I'm just kind of chasing one rabbit here. I'm just pulling on one thread, so to speak. I'm trying to take 2 Corinthians 3.18 and make sense of it. What do you mean I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to another? Or what in the world is Peter talking about when he says we, became, we become partakers of the divine nature? So my hope is to sort of trace this theme through Scripture. And again, there's so much we could say. There's so much time. We could do a whole conference on glory. I just want to kind of press into this being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But let's start in eternity past. If you have your notes, point number one, glory possessed in eternity past. Before anything was, God was, and God was glorious. He existed as a tri-unity in perfect harmony, perfect completeness, perfect in all his attributes, lacking in nothing. God did not need to create in order to fill up something that was lacking in himself. If God could improve, it would mean there was something lacking in God and therefore he would fail to be God. He is eternal. He is the unchanging Lord. 
And so we would say God alone possesses this intrinsic worth or this intrinsic glory. Everything else that we might say, wow, that is glorious. Everything else that might be said to have some semblance of glory is glorious because it reflects something that's true about God. He alone is intrinsically glorious. Now, if you're in Custer, the other night a big storm rolled through, and at the same time, the sun was setting, and it was the craziest sunset I've, I've ever seen. My, my oldest son said, I think there's a fire on the other side of the hill, and I went and visited Bunny the next day. She's like, yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. It looked like the sky was just absolutely on fire. It was blazing. We might look at that and say, wow, what a glorious sunset. Well, what makes it glorious is that creation is communicating to us something that's true about the creativity, the beauty, the wisdom, the knowledge, or the power of God. So when we speak about God, he, he alone possesses this intrinsically in himself. He is infinitely valuable without having to add anything to who he is in his character, in his nature, in his person. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. His position cannot improve. His prestige cannot improve. His power cannot improve. And so his, his person, his character, his nature places him in a completely and utterly different category from all of creation. He alone is the rightful center of the universe. And we see this all over Scripture after highlighting for 11 chapters God's wisdom and salvation. Paul explodes and prays for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Also, David exclaims that God is the king of glory. Stephen referred to him as the God of glory. And so God alone possesses this in and of himself. And I think that's what makes point two so utterly stunning. That in his kindness, God not only is glorious, he not only displays his glory, which again, that's a thread we could run with for days. We're going we're gonna to resist that. We're going to stay on track. He not only displays his glory in creation, and so that we might see it and we might know some things that are true about God, but that he actually allows his image bearers, in some sense, to partake in his glory. Well, what in the world does that look like? Well, point number two, glory shared with man. You can start making your way to Psalm 8. As Scripture begins, we could go to Genesis 1 and 2, obviously, as well. As Scripture begins, you get this sense that creation is building towards something. That, that, that God, is, God is pleased with the land, and He's pleased with the vegetation, He's pleased with the animals, but He is building towards the crowning glory of His creation, something grand, something beyond the animal world, something beyond the birds of the air, and we receive our answer on day six of creation. At the climax of God's creative work, He made a creature unlike any other. 
He made a creature that's beyond the bears and the donkeys and the giraffes. He made a being in his own image. And as persons made in his likeness, God bestowed upon Adam a sort of glory. Look at Psalm 8. Psalm 8 begins and ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When a psalm is bookended like that, it's a flashing light saying, this is the theme, this is the point of the passage. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Well, how has God demonstrated his glory in verse 2 by using the weak things of this world to confound the wise? If you have time tonight, you can read Matthew 21 when Jesus quotes this passage. When the children are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. The son of David is here, they're crying out. The the children are silencing God's enemies. And number three, or verse three, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, God demonstrates his glory in creation. We've talked about that. And this, this immense power and authority and wisdom and beauty and splendor of God that's on display in creation leads the psalmist to ask, then what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Now this is, this is royal language. This is kingly language that David is using here. God designed man to serve as sort of a a vice regent, or you might say as a representative, and Adam and Eve were called to carry out the will of God in creation. That's what it says in the rest of this chapter. You have given him dominion over the works uh, of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Man was created, and they were given this commission to rule well over creation, to fulfill the will of God, to perfectly obey God and everything that he has called them to do. And in that, they were, to re- they were going to be a reflection of who God is. They were image bearers in the sense that they possessed these, the, these things that made them similar to God in, in some ways, like their intellect, their emotion, their will. But they are also called to actively image, to be an image, to reflect God back and forth to one another, to be a reflection of who God is in creation. And it was in this capacity... In this, this reflection, they were to reflect God's glory to one another. It was their capacity as image bearers to engage in the activity of obeying God and fulfilling his will, and thereby they would reflect his nature and they would reflect his character. And so like we can look at a sunset and say, wow, that's glorious because we're learning things about God. It demonstrates things about God. Man was created to be a demonstration, to be an image, to be a picture of who God is and what he is like. So from the very beginning then, I think we see this link and we'll see this continue to play out. That that there's this link between glory and image, the image of God in man. This becomes what we'll see, I think, is an important theme in redemption. So though all of creation testifies to the glory of God, 
Though all of creation is, is revelation of who he is, mankind was uniquely equipped for the task. What a position. What, what a task man was given. But we know that much of this was squandered at the empty promise from a sneaky serpent. Point number three, glory lost in sin. You can turn to Romans 3 if you'd like. Many of you have that passage memorized, Romans 3.23, but I want us to see what Paul is up to. I want to be careful not to imply that man is no longer made in the image of God. We remain in the image of God. We retain our status as image bearers, but an essential aspect of this glory was lost at the fall. And Paul sums it up by describing in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now I think it's easy for us to make the assumption that Paul means nothing more than we have failed to glorify God. And that's true. But I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 3.23. To fall short here, it means to, to lack something or to be in want, to be in need of something. And it seems like if we take our understanding of creation, that Paul is arguing that in our sin we lack that original glory, that imaging of God that Adam and Eve possessed before the fall. So we lack this, this obedience to the Lord. We lack walking in the will of God. Adam and Eve's task was to obey God and thereby, thereby image him in creation. And we have utterly, Adam and Eve and everyone since has utterly failed to take up that task of imaging God. Now Douglas Moo says this, Paul then, what, what a name, right? Um, Paul then is indicating that all people fail to exhibit that being like God for which they were created. He's indicating that all people fail to, to live out that being like God for which they were made. Again, John Murray says this, the same thing as in his commentary on Romans 3.23, that we are destitute of that perfection which is the reflection of God's divine perfection and therefore the glory of God. We're destitute of reflecting God. Sin is so pervasive that it has undermined the very thing that we were created to do, to obey God, to do the will of God, and thereby reflect the glory of God. So the glory Adam and Eve possessed their capacity and willingness to fulfill God's will by imaging him in creation was lost. The image remains. We are in the image of God even after the fall, but that specific aspect of the image was lost. We no longer pleased God. We no longer walked in his will. We no longer reflect his, reflected his character. And all of us, right? All of us are born in the status. We can try to pin it on Adam and Eve, but we would have done the same thing we are like our first parents, Adam and Eve, all without distinction. That's Paul's point in Romans 3.23. All without distinction have fallen short of the glory of God. So before we move on, if we're going to think about sin in light of image bearing and in light of creation, I want us to consider that sin is so pervasive and sin is so destructive and sin is so powerful that it distorted our very humanity. 
our minds were darkened and we walked in futility, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Our wills are bound by selfishness and sinfulness. There's none who seeks God. There's none who does good. No, not one. Our emotions are wrongly expressed as we have deceitful hearts that we can't even understand. Our bodies are delighting in sin when we are apart from Christ. And so part of what makes sin so revolting is that we use the benefits of being an image bearer to, re- to rebel against the one that created us in his image. We use the very things that set us apart from the rest of creation, the very things that allow us to know and to love and to serve God, and we use those to spit in God's face and to turn from him. So it's no, it's no surprise to us then that we needed a rescuer outside of us. We needed someone to come and to save us from ourselves as we think about the significance of sin. So we see number four then, the glory incarnated in Christ. In the incarnation, Jesus is the image He is the perfect image of God because he is God in the flesh. In Colossians 1, Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So as the God-man, Jesus uniquely demonstrates the glory of God as he lived in joyful obedience to the Father, always did the will of the Father, and therefore always reflected the glory of God and lived in such a way that we were meant to live from the beginning. He was always submissive to the will of the Father. So in demonstrating this this perfect unity that exists among the Trinity, so it exists between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus perfectly reflects. He perfectly demonstrates the image of God. He lived under the rule of the Father. He was always found doing God's will. And so you might say, and and I think this is really clear in Luke 4, that Jesus passed where Adam and Eve failed and where we have all subsequently fallen short. Jesus passed where Adam and Eve failed and all of us have subsequently walked in the, the footsteps of our parents, Adam and Eve. And so... Jesus is the one in Psalm 8 who is truly crowned with glory and honor. He is the one that will truly rule and reign over creation. He will bring it underneath his authority. Part of the mystery of the gospel, part of the surprise in the New Testament is that the path to the crown went through the cross for Christ. And so we see the author of Hebrews takes up Psalm 8 in his argument He says, but we see him, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so through his death and resurrection, Jesus demonstrates himself as the the one who truly reflected the image of God. He, he, He paved the way then 
through his work for us to be reconciled to God. And the author of Hebrews says, to be brought to glory. To be brought to glory. So in our union with Christ, then we, we participate in his victory. The blessings and the benefits that he won, and I wish we had a whole session on union with Christ, but the blessings and benefits that he won flow to those who are united to him by faith. So then point number five, glory renewed in union with Christ. The glory, again, it's a derived glory, it's an expressed glory, we're reflecting the glory of God, but the glory that was lost at the fall is being renewed in those who are united with Christ. The glory lost at the fall is being renewed in those who are found in Christ. From justification onward, the Spirit begins the process of conforming us to what? The image of Christ who is the image of God. What was broken at the fall is being reversed. So the logic of what I'm, what I'm pressing at is man is made in God's image. Man fails to be the proper image. Jesus comes as the perfect image. He rescues people from the consequences of their sin and begins the process of renewing them into his image. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, so that Christ would be a, a firstborn among many brethren. And so Paul then argues that, that as we are becoming more and more like Christ, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that's what we call progressive sanctification. We're going to have a whole going to have a session on that um, tomorrow night. But notice again in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the link between glory and image. We are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And so it, we, we said in sin, like our, our, our mind, our will, our emotion, even our bodies are affected by sin. And we said, that's what makes sin so terrible, and that's what makes sin so destructive, and that's what makes sin so condemnable. And and then we might say the same thing about salvation. What makes salvation so incredible then is that part of being renewed into the image of Christ is that our minds are renewed according to the word of God. In Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, so as we are being worked on through God's word, through his Holy Spirit, our minds are being renewed. Our wills are being brought into greater alignment with the will of God. Our emotions are more and more, as we become like Christ, properly expressed. And our bodies are being brought into submission. So Paul says in Romans 6, 12, don't present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. So then Paul is making this argument that as you, as you behold, as you consider the glory of the Lord, as you think about his intrinsic beauty and his worth that, that's primarily on display in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are being conformed, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And in this sense, we are moving towards what we were designed to be from the beginning. We are moving back towards this status that was bestowed upon us. I think that's what Peter's saying in 2 Peter 1.4. 
when he says that we, are be, that we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, people have taken that and said some really weird stuff about that. But it's, so, so I feel like I should just clarify quickly. It's not that we're gods. It's not that we become gods. It's not that we're somehow absorbed in God, but it's like we are becoming like Christ, who is the image of God through his indwelling spirit, through our union with Christ, we are becoming like him. This is God's intention from the beginning. I want to hit some implications uh, of this in just a minute, but we'd be remiss if we didn't end uh, this sort of walkthrough with glory restored forever. One day, this, this original glory that Adam and Eve possessed will be fully restored. The Apostle John said, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. From heaven will come our Savior, Paul says in Philippians, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Again, we will not become God. We will not become little gods. We will remain embodied humans forever, for all eternity. We are creatures that possess a body and a soul, but we are eternally redeemed, and we become like Christ in eternity. We are rid of sin, and we perfectly image God for all eternity. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus ensures this future glorification of all those who turn and trust in him. So let's think quickly with the time that we have left. What does this mean for those of us who counsel? Uh, maybe some of you are like, I just want to be a better disciple maker. Like, I just want to be able to speak the truth and love to others more effectively. Well, what does that mean for us? First, God sets the agenda for counseling. And his agenda is glory. Or you might say, God sets the agenda for discipleship. Or God sets the agenda for speaking the truth in love. And his agenda is glory. That is, his goal is to glorify himself as his people behold his glory and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. I should do a word search on this sermon for glory and see how many times I've said it. But God sets the agenda through the means of, of God's, words, then God's word, then we have the opportunity to help others behold the glory of the Lord. Through the means of holding out not our own wisdom, not our own abilities, not our own thoughts, but as we hold out God's word, as we hold out Christ in Scripture, we, we have the opportunity to help others behold the glory of the Lord. And this act of beholding is transformative. And Lord willing, by God's grace and through God's spirit, we might see others be transformed into the image of Christ. So I would say, you know, if, if we were to ask, what is the goal of biblical counseling? Well, there's a lot of good answers, you know, Christ-likeness or, or change. But I would say fundamentally, we would say the, the goal is to glorify God by becoming like Christ. To glorify God by becoming like Christ that we might become like the image. 
So life change and godly habits and some of these practical things we're going to talk about this week, they all matter, and they're, and they're part of this transformation, and we'll see that as this conference progresses. But I think they all got to be placed under this, this big theme of the glory of God. So I would just say practically, almost without fail, one of my first two sessions in every counseling session is walking through these three questions, answering the questions. Some of you may have heard of this if you've been maybe to faith, I don't know, maybe masters. I don't know where I got this. Um, what does God expect of me? Well, God expects me to glorify him. That's the first statement. I want him to memorize. I want him to go home. I want him to look up 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's their homework. Memorize this. What does God expect of me? God expects me to glorify him. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7, these people whom I created for my glory. Look these up and, and memorize this. What does God expect of me? God expects me to glorify him. Number two, I glorify him by becoming like Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We referenced that earlier. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the one we've been kind of pressing into. What does God expect of me? Well, God expects me to glorify him. I glorify him by becoming like Christ. Number three, I, I won't be perfect in this life, but God expects me to be growing. I won't be perfect in this life, but God expects me to be growing. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't let, your, don't, don't let them run with that as an excuse to sin. Like, well, I'm not perfect, so I'm just going to keep sinning. That's not where I'm going. But God sets the agenda for counseling, and his agenda is glory. A second implication, that we might remember the hope of eternal glory as motivation for growth today. Not only in our own hearts, but as we hold out Christ for counselees. You know, in my experience, it's easier to, to look back. It's easier to look back at the cross and God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I look back at the cross and I'm motivated to grow. But if you read First Peter, he keeps saying, look forward, look forward, look forward, look forward. And so and maybe you don't need this reminder. Maybe you're, you're constantly looking forward. But as a counselor, I need to be reminded, look forward and help others look forward because both we can look forward we can look backwards we can look at Christ's ministry now as our intercessor it's a means of being conformed to Christ it's a means of motivation to to pursue godliness and obedience again first john 3 3 everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself daily even as he is pure so this hope is meant to purify us to make us like Christ. And third, this, this isn't in my notes, but you can jot this down. Don't assume the basics in your discipleship or counseling. Don't assume the basics. And here's what I mean. Don't assume the person you're meeting with knows all this. Don't assume they already have processed through all this. I'm often tempted to see statements like, well, God expects me to glorify him and say, well, yeah, we know that. I don't need to go there with somebody that I'm, that I'm helping or counseling. That's pretty basic. That's pretty fundamental. But then I remember my mind goes back to being a new Christian in the dorms, 
surrounded by people that had been following the Lord a lot longer than I had. And loads of us, loads of us, almost all of us had no idea about the glory of God. Almost none of us knew that God's agenda for us was to become like Christ. Almost none of us understood that even if I'm by myself, I have an obligation to live unto God's glory. It wasn't until I was a junior in Christian college, one of my seminary, well, you know, one of, the, one of the seminary professors ventured down into the undergrad as an act of grace and mercy. He would teach the undergrad students. His name was Kevin Carson. Some of you know him. Some of you came from Springfield. You know him well. He was teaching a class uh, there in the undergrad, and um, he opened up his Bible, and he showed us from the text the glory of the Lord, and it changed my life. As a junior in Bible college, God gave me, through his word, a glimpse of his glory. He gave me eyes to see. And so I just want to remind us that there's a good possibility that your, your disciple your counsel whatever you want to call them, is likely coming because they want relief or, or they want to kick habits or they want to make a really good decision, but they need to see the glory of the Lord. They need to see the bigger picture. Um, in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, you know, as part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, some of you love it, some of you hate it, that's okay. Jesus is pictured as a lion named Aslan, and the main characters are these four children who stumble into this magical world called Narnia on accident, but they soon find out that Aslan is a good and he's a benevolent ruler and king. And in one of the books, in Prince Caspian, one of the children, Lucy, she encounters Aslan, and she hasn't seen Aslan in a long time. It's been, it's been a season since she's been back to Narnia, and she sees Aslan. She knows, Aslan, you're, you're bigger than you were the last time I saw you. And so C.S. Lewis then writes this, she rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last, Lucy says, welcome, child, Aslan says. Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan gives a surprising response. Lucy, that's because you are older, little one. Not because you are older, Aslan, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What a role we get to play in the lives of others and helping them see a big and glorious Christ and see them transformed from one degree of glory to another, that they might see Christ as bigger. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed by your glory. That you would see us and love us in eternity past and place your love on us, choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you would predestine us to be conformed to the image of Christ, that you would rescue us from the penalty of our sin, that you would conform us to the glorious image of Jesus. Thank you for being kind to us. We look forward to the day that we are glorified in your presence. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.